This podcast is brought to you by Cyber Attacks Can Be Prevented. Checkpoint, you deserve the best security. A fiddler on the roof. Sounds crazy, no? But here, in our little village of Anatevka, you might say every one of us is a fiddler on the roof. It's unholy, so much news to talk about, but all I really want to dive into is the life of Chaim Topol, the definitive Tevye whose death was announced this week. I'm Jonathan Friedland of The Guardian in London. And I'm Yuni Levy of Channel 12 in Tel Aviv. It's Unholy Two Jews on the News from Keshet Podcast. And indeed, as you mentioned, Jonathan, a lot of other news going on. But first, uh, we want to say uh, what to life and to talk about uh, Chaim Topol. It's interesting to me, like the, the first thing that you think about really is that there is one role that you can see him in. He did many other roles, and Israelis obviously remember him as, as uh, Salah Shabbati, you know, so many others. I mean, he's really the definitive Israeli actor. And we should say that the the theme that we heard, not only Chaim Topol, but this is a way that a radio show that went on for, to remind me, 20 or 25 years, which was presented by Michael Friedland, your father, in a program called You Don't Have to Be Jewish. That was its, its opening theme. This is all working for me on so many different <laughs> emotional levels. It's quite true because how we opened our show uh, this week, slightly you indulging me, is a very triggers a very Proustian, nostalgic memory for me because absolutely those opening notes of Fiddler on the Roof were also the opening notes for 25 years of You Don't Have to Be Jewish on the BBC presented by my late dad, Michael Friedland. And so when I sit in the theatre seeing revivals of Fiddler on the Roof, I'm being hit emotionally from all directions because, yes, it's the story, but also it's this absolute memory woven in throughout my life because the radio show started when I was four years old. But let's talk about Topol himself and this show. The, the two are so interwoven themselves, Topol and Tevya, to the point where people would sometimes say, oh, are you playing Topol? As <laughs> if Topol was the character. Um on the BBC this morning, as you and I are recording, because the death, the news of the death came through overnight for Thursday, the BBC did a tribute and they got on uh, the, an actor, Andy Nyman, a very good actor who played Tevi recently, to pay tribute to Topol. And what was so fascinating was he and the anchor of the show just started talking about the character of Tevi and saying he's a, such a strong role model, a proud father, but he cares so much and any immigrant family. And before you knew it, the two had merged into each other. And that was, in a way, Topol fate is that he played this character so definitively, brilliantly, initially in the uh, Hebrew production and was seen by the producers of the Broadway show who just thought, this guy is great. He was very, very young, just 30 years old, I think, when he first played this middle-aged father with, with adult children, you know, worrying about his three daughters and their marital choices. And uh, he, nevertheless, they just, he swept them off their feet and it got cast against all expectation in the Hollywood movie. The role until then had belonged to Zero Mostel, but it became uh, Topol's. But in some ways, he could never escape it. And I've mentioned my dad. I mean, my dad did work with Topol a lot. He was a frequent guest on the radio show and would ask him this thing, does it, you know, irritate you? And I think the truth is, on some level, it did. He wanted to have a bigger role publicly. He would uh, have more roles. 
publicly he would always say that no i'm so grateful just to have this one thing but it it could be an irritation um but the he, the two became absolutely inseparable and the place of fiddler on the roof i think for diaspora jews in particular cannot be overstated there are many jews whose whole knowledge of shtetl life of life before their families came to britain or america or whatever is from that show i mean that's their understanding of what the shtetl is anna tevka is the definitive shtetl uh mm-hmm. in the kind of global imagination i mean that is a huge achievement and centrally down to chaim topolo right. and and the effect of it when you think of lin-manuel miranda who is such a a fan of Fiddler on the Roof and of Topol himself. I think he's in the midst of making a, a remake of, of Fiddler on the Roof. He sang on his wedding day, Lechaim to Life, with his father-in-law. I mean, just think of how, in the history of musicals, just how important that was. I mean, the strange thing about the show, um, Fiddler on the Roof, is you didn't have to be Jewish right. to love it. Right. And it is so unabashedly without compromise in its Jewishness and yet it is completely seen as a universal story. But now we're going to have to see that show without even Topol as a sort of living part of our imagination, although I think perhaps it will always be there because of the film. We'll always have that in our minds. If I were rich man, incidentally, is the bit that everyone's been playing as part of the sort of, you know, broadcast obituaries of Topol. You know, it's typical of me, isn't it? But I had to have sort of angst about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's one of those things that's really understood. If you know the canon of Sholem Alechem and Isaac Beshevis singer and so on, yeah. you know that it's the dream of a very obviously poor man coming from a poor world. There are people who, who I think, think, oh, right, of course, it's Jews that all they're dreaming about is money. Yeah. And so I prefer myself to hear, you know, again, the song tradition or sunrise sunset or you know it, with that opening line is this the little girl i carried i mean it is so moving i have to say my father did at the wedding of my older sister fiona he did literally start breaking out into song and sing is this the little girl i carried in his wedding speech a moment of huge embarrassment at the time but a fond memory now but just more proof that somehow another or another this show climb topple woven it's, into our lives it's and, the soundtrack um, and, of our lives. and it's not just yeah. us it is yeah. it is now much news going okay, on and that's that we can end our program with that and just <laughs> people would love it um but um the week of purim we're doing everything a little bit differently even Fair including enough. opening a show in a very different way from normal the news doesn't stop especially where you are no, it really doesn't. We are recording this uh, Thursday noon and the day of disruption and resistance. Yet another one, the uh, protest organizers call it this way. We should say that the protests in Israel have been ongoing for nine weeks now since Yariv Levine, the justice minister, presented his plan for judicial overhaul. Uh, last Saturday night, there were 250,000 protesters uh, in Israel, 160,000 of them in Tel Aviv alone. Now, the days of resistance are like the extra protests protest days or when the, the, some of the protest says we're not going to be, say, we're not going to be Mr. Nice Guys, we're going to uh, kind of uh, block streets and do things like that. This, today, this resistance will be focused on the Ben-Gurion airport because Benjamin Netanyahu is about to take off to Rome and uh, demonstrators are trying to prevent that from happening. And it's definitely not a good look for him that for weeks, El Al, the national carrier, could not find a pilot that agreed to fly Netanyahu and his wife to Rome. The 
excuse was, of course, you know, we couldn't find a shift for it. I'm too busy, etc. But they couldn't find a pilot who would fly them to Rome. All this, not the makings of a leader in control. If you can't drive from Jerusalem to the airport, you need to be taken by a helicopter uh, to Ben-Gurion Airport. Uh, if you cannot meet the uh, Secretary of Defense of the United States, Lloyd Austin, who's come to see you in Jerusalem because he can't get out of the airport, so he's going to meet him there. This is all, you know, things are not exactly normal, I think is what I'm trying to say in Israel. Now, I'm going to take a little bit of a risk here and make a little bit of a prediction if you're ready for it. Um, You've got a good track record, so you can do I, it. Yeah, so you let's ruin it. it. I uh, don't see a way in which the legislation of the judicial overhaul presented by Ariv Levine, shepherded through parliament uh, hurriedly by Simcha Rotman, who's the head of the Constitution Committee, I don't see how this legislation passes as it has been written. And I why? will explain why. I mean, maybe there's a softer version. Maybe there, the whole thing halts for a while. I just don't see it happening. And I will explain because I think there are two things that happened, two very dramatic things that happened this week that changed the course of what we're seeing. Uh, the first thing that happened, and I'll just read you the headline that came out in Haaretz by Amos Harel yesterday. It said this, reservists warned the IDF chief of staff, majority of air crews in the Israeli Air Force will stop flying if Netanyahu's judicial overhaul uh, is passed. Now, let's think about this for a minute, Jonathan, what we just heard and what Netanyahu is hearing loud and clear. We talked about this a little bit last week with Amos Yadlin, who's deputy commander of the Israeli Air Force, about Squadron 69 that said that it, the reservists said they would not come to battle. And we discussed this option. Really significant. We both said at the time, and he said, hugely significant. I must say that I know if Siren will go up and there will be a, an external war, they all come, but they are using their position in the Israeli society to say something. Do I ha I love it? No. I think that as much as we can keep the IDF off this political combat, it is uh, very important. Let's talk about what Israel has been doing in the past decade, right? It's been called in Israel, in English, it would be the war between the wars. There's been a stealth war or a stealth, stealth combat. And Israel has been week in, week out, we should say, according to foreign reports, attacking Iranian targets in Syria and beyond. The, of course, reason for this is to minimize Iran's influence in the region. Now, you have to know that every time the planes are in the air doing these sorts of attacks, half of the pilots in the cockpits are reserve pilots, are reservists. If they say to Benjamin Netanyahu, we are not showing up if you run through this legislation, that is a dramatic shift in the way that he can run this. Well, we've been asking... Since this began, you mentioned nine weeks of protest, since the judicial overhaul became the story, often it's taken the form of me asking you, putting you on the spot, well, what's the thing that stops this? And there have been different pressure points throughout. There have been the tech billionaires, the unicorn founders saying, we're pulling out, taking our tax revenues with us. There's been pressure from the diaspora, American Jews in particular, statements from unexpected quarters, APAC from the founder of the Anti-Defamation League, Abraham Foxman, would that be 
the shoe that would drop, the protests themselves, people, 300,000 people sometimes on the streets. But the military, the idea of the pilots the saying, is, this becomes then a national security issue. And mm -hmm. this is what Amos Yadlin was saying, that actually Israel's own military ability to defend itself is deleteriously affected by judicial overhaul. If that argument presses in on the government, does it say, okay, the, in the balance of the need to reform the judiciary as they see it versus the demand that we protect the country, if those two things are in conflict, you would think that obviously the need to defend the country comes first. If we were talking about wholly rational decision-making, that would obviously be the outcome. Mm -hmm. And so I'm you know, heartened to hear you predict that uh, this may not happen. But my question would be whether or not that is the condition of the decision-makers and the decision-making. Is it wholly rational? And is it wholly putting the national interest first? Because the critique I and others have made of Netanyahu is he has got to that point. It happens to often to leaders who've been in it for a very long time where he, in his mind, fuses the national interest with his personal interest. Mm -hmm. And what is his, in his personal interest, he thinks is what serves the state. And in this case, getting off the hook of that, those trials and the prospect of jail, which is perhaps a driver for these judicial reforms when all is said and done, maybe that matters to him more even than the ability of the country to defend itself. But I, I, I ask it as a question because obviously it's in some ways a, an allegation, a serious one to make against him. The leader of the state of Israel on Thursday today cannot drive from Jerusalem to Ben Gurion Airport to leave for Rome. He needs a helicopter to take him from Jerusalem to Tel Aviv to Ben Gurion Airport in Lod to fly out. Even if you are his opponent and think that the one thing he's looking at is getting out of trial, the trial can run for another two or two and a half years. His reign is now. And this is a man who sold this to the Israeli public and, and did it successfully, immensely successfully. He said, I missed your stability, I missed your security, and I missed your economy. What we're seeing is not stable. I think we can all agree on that, being Netanyahu supporters or his opponents. Security, you have a very big issue with not only pilots, but thousands of elite unit reservists saying, we're not showing up for reserve duty if you run this legislation through the Knesset. And economy, remember, we are sitting here in a week in which the credit ratings agency Moody's issues an unusual warning to Israel if the judicial overhaul will be implemented, they say in full. The proposed changes could, I quote, materially weaken the strength of the judiciary and as such be credit negative. So he's not exactly emerging as Mr. Economy either. Now, all of this together is a perfect storm. It's stronger than Netanyahu thought it would be. It's stronger than his legislation. It's stronger than Netanyahu himself. I, I mean, you always ask me this perennial question throughout our past episodes, how much do the protests matter? Well, they matter because it's all a net. I'm not sure the pilots, the Israeli Air Force pilots, would feel confident to come out against the reform the way that they did if they hadn't had the support of the people uh, in the streets. 250,000 Israelis is more than 2.5% of the population here. In American terms, that's 8.5 million people out in the streets. So it's all connected. All of it together creates the situation in which Netanyahu is stuck. I don't yet know how he turns this around, but he cannot move forward. Such a good point about the protests, in a way, granting this permission, opening the space for other people to then act. I think it's a really 
valuable take because some people have been wondering what actually is the point of these demonstrations. I've he- I'm hearing that even here. By the way, there are satellite demonstrations going on in around the world in the United States. There's a big demonstration planned here in London on Sunday in Parliament Square. Very very rare, organised by Israelis in the UK, not organised by the British Jewish community, but organised by expat Israelis protesting against their own government. I mean, really unusual. I don't know whether that's ever happened before. And people have been wondering, you know, what's the point? We wave a few banners and does anybody notice? And I think you've just really put your finger on an important point, which is it opens up space for others. If you are right that the government and Netanyahu himself have come to that conclusion, I think then the focus, especially actually for those people who want these reforms to be halted, is perhaps to start thinking about how he climbs down from this. Do do people who want this to be averted now have to devote their energies to finding the ladder that Bibi Netanyahu can climb down and without perhaps you know, losing face. And that's that that might be hard for people who would love to see him humiliated. But actually, if your focus is making sure this doesn't go ahead, what's the exit strategy? What's the way out? And I know that the president, Isaac Herzog, has offered himself as this sort of mediator and saying, let me broker some kind of compromise. I was very struck by the words of Yuval Noah Harari, you know, previous guest on this podcast, obviously world famous uh, historian and writer who addressed the demonstrators uh, at the weekend, last weekend, and said on the business of compromise, when a tiger comes to devour us, we cannot negotiate a compromise whereby the tiger will only eat half of our body. And I sort of have sympathy for this. I'm somebody who, look, in all kinds of other arenas, does believe in negotiation and compromise. You've got to. But this is one of those difficult things. You either have an independent judiciary or you don't. And um, I sort of agree with him. So that makes it quite hard for uh, to see how Netanyahu does climb down from this, short of saying... Not, you know, we're going to put a softer proposal, but the mo- the time is not right. We're going to have to come back to this. Can he say that? Does he have the political space to say that with his coalition, with his public? Is that too, does he, would he be too weakened by that? I don't know. In a way, I wouldn't blame protesters if they say, you know what? That's not our problem. Uh, that's his problem. But right now, for this to work, there needs to be a ladder by which he can climb down from the position he has uh, staked out since this government was formed. Right. The issue of compromise is, of course, the the conversation of the week of what we have seen um, thus far is really proposals that are softening a little bit the original plan put forth uh, by, presented by Yariv Levine. Look, I mean, obviously you can't go halfway, so that's a very complicated discussion to have. We know we've discussed this a lot on the podcast. There are two the heart of this stage of the uh, overhaul has to do with the fact that the coalition wanted 100% control over all of the judges, appointing all of the judges. This will not happen if there's a compromise. That's obvious. It's obvious it's one thing they need to compromise on. The other is what kind of judicial review will be in Israel. I mean, these are not small details. This is the heart of the matter. I don't see a plan yet. But it's important to also ask the question, 
you know what? There's an interesting thing that you do see in the Likud this week, because when the pilots came out with what they came out with, there were, of course, Netanyahu's loyalists in the Likud turning against the pilots themselves. This is unprecedented in Israeli history. You have people like Shlomo Kari, who's the minister of communications, telling them, go to hell. If you could ever imagine any Israeli politician telling Israeli pilots, combat pilots, go to hell. That is something we've never heard before. Another of his ministers, Galit Distar, another Netanyahu loyalist telling them, I despise you. And then the Likud trying to pull this back. And other members of the Likud, people like Miki Zohar, people like Barkat, I'm saying these names because you asked me if there are any moderates or relative moderates in the Likud attacking their own uh, members of, of uh, Knesset, members of the government. So you see a little bit of these voices in the Likud saying, guys, we have to find a compromise. And not only in the Likud, also in the settler movement, there are voices that are saying, we need a compromise. So I think that that is where this is heading. On the other side, there's a question, who's holding these negotiations? Because Lapid and Gantz can't sit on any or agree to anything that the street, the protesters in the street won't agree to. The protesters in the street are not going to agree to, you know, anything that looks to them that that is too weak a, a, a compromise. Who are you talking to? The one person who could basically say, I agree with this compromise and everyone will listen to is maybe Aaron Barak, right? The venerated chief justice. That can be an, a, a way to get down from this ladder. But I think we're still far, a little bit far from that, from that moment. When you're getting into a culture war that involves you accusing some of your most vital military warriors of not being patriots and of saying that you're, you despise them and you want them to go to hell, you are on the losing side. Just a closing thought on this. Why the pilots? What, what is there some thing that means the pilot, you know, the Air Force traditionally more political? Why is, why was it them who broke on this issue? Well, I think, first of all, it wasn't only them. There's a whole line of elite units and reservists and elite units. Again, thousands of thousands of, of reservists signing these letters and saying, we're not going to take it. Like, I'm paraphrasing what they're saying. is essentially saying, we fight for Israel and we will lay down our lives for Israel for the values that we recognize. If you turn into a country that we don't recognize, that contract is broken between us. Uh, that's essentially... Uh, what they're saying, if I'm paraphrasing, but the point of what you're saying is the pilots got the most attention, obviously. First of all, because they get the most attention, they're the creme de la creme of the, of the Israeli military, but also because, as I told you, this is not a theoretical, hypothetical scenario. In 10 years, Israel won't attack Iran and, she won't have, and the country won't have pilots. No, it's right now in the cockpits every week. So that is why it's such an urgent uh, thing to address. As we said, so much news going on, but perhaps a bit of a turning point um, this week based on everything you've been saying. A week in which the Judaism traditionally commands that we see the world turned upside down. It sounds like politics in Israel has been a bit upside down anyway, <laughs> but the festival of Purim this week, when everything is inverted and uh, where um, those who are usually serious instead are sort of clownish. It's a strange kind of festival. Everyone's in costume. We had, uh, you know, the site here, I always mention this, of our very, this very Haredi neighborhood I live in, in London, the one day a year when the kids get to really dress up in all the different costumes and so on. And obviously, I know you um, are usually leading your kids through the neighborhood all dressed up. Did that happen again this year, Yoni? Of course. I always, can I give my usual Purim rant in which Please. Israel uh, Purim is not uh, in Dasperts one day, I guess, of costumes. And uh, in Israel, somehow it's morphed into this seven-day holiday 
Apparently, the costumes lasted for seven months. It was for eight days. It was the miracle of Purim. Anyway, you have three kids. Uh, one would have three kids, and they all have to be. There are different costume days. So one is the official costume day, and then you have Animal Day and Pajama Day and Prince and Princesses Day and Hat Day, and it, it goes on and on. And of course, it's never coordinated. So every different school or kindergarten have their own decisions on when. Whoever comes, it's it's a difficult. <laughs> I survived for him. Should be my T-shirt. That this week. is unbelievably um, demanding. But actually. but at least you know I I I, I like the fact that we, we stood with Jewish tradition and um, we have our Princess Elsa again this year. Very very Jewishy. I think. Um, yes, the my Frozen Chosen. The Frozen Chosen. I think my daughter is, is five. I think she's been uh, Elsa for Purim for ten years straight. That's what it feels like. Um, <laughs> But yeah, so it's, was it, but still, you know, there's nothing that I know that you are, we've talked about this. You're more a Pesach person. I like Purim. What's not to like? You dress up and you get drunk. It, I like Purim. I like the story. Yeah. I like the whole thing. But yeah. you know, that kind of thing where this Tel Aviv neighborhood is suddenly, you know, that magical moment of the little kids walking around in their ill-fit costumes and they're all so happy to be something else for a day. I mean, I love that moment. Anyway. And since it is Purim, we thought, why not pause for a minute and hear from someone who maybe if we laugh, we might feel better at this crazy time. So let's uh, let's hear from someone who can make us laugh. Our guest is a fixture in the New York comedy scene, voted one of the city's top 10 comedians by The Hollywood Reporter, regularly plays packed houses across the United States. He has fans absolutely everywhere, but especially, I think it's fair to say, among the American Jewish public. He was born in Tel Aviv. Newspaper profiles describe him as the Jewish, Orthodox, gay comedian, not always in that order. He is Mordechai Rosenfeld, better known as Modi. Modi, it is terrific to have you on Unholy. Welcome to the podcast. It's great to be here. And fresh, I know, from a visit, very successful visit here in London, which went down extremely well, packed houses. Uh, and you're playing those everywhere you go. I mean, it seems to me that there you are in America, in the place that in some ways invented modern Jewish comedy. Every, you know, everyone says American comedy is Jewish comedy, etc. But you seem to me to be perhaps the most Jewish comedian maybe there's ever been, because unlike, you know, your Woody Allen and Larry, uh, uh, and Larry David and so on, your act is about Jewish things. You even do a whole thing on how Jews say good yontif to each other, or Chag Sameach, depending. Are you the most Jewish comic ever? That's your our first question. I, I don't know that, but I'm definitely a Jewish comedian. I, you know, there's comedians who happen to be Jewish, but I am a Jewish comedian, that's for sure. But what I'm interested in, I mean, you, the New York Jewish comedy scene, I mean, is quite crowded, if not the most crowded. It's not like you wanted to be a German comedian in Munich, right? I mean, right. it's a, <laughs> it's a tough thing to do. It really is. Did you kind of think of that or it just came naturally to, to you that you knew you'd I, be I good? didn't think about, um, how I, I think about how hard it would be or how hard it is to, to do it. It was a kind of like it just happened very naturally. My friend who I used to imitate the secretaries that I worked with. So my friend said, you should do this instead of at the table, do it on stage. So he organized a, uh, a comedy night where uh, people were brought in. 
and I went up and I just did all the imitations I I did for, for for all my friends, and they just loved it. It was these over the top characters of people I worked with, all types of accents, and um, you know, just the crazy little things, and uh, and that's how it began. And the, the I, I'm just interested whether the comedy professionals, as it were, like agents, for example, or people booking, set what they made of because there is a. Uh, and a perennial reaction to this, which I just uh, want to run past you, which is when you said, look, part or where they saw that part of your act is, for example, the difference between the way Ashkenazi Jews bless the bread, Hamotzi Lechem Minaret, and the way Sephardi or Mizrahi Jews do that. Did anybody say, you know what, this is too Jewish? Those two words, too Jewish. Did you ever get that? Well, the, you know, when you when I began doing comedy, it wasn't as Jewish. My voice developed as a Jewish voice, but at first, it was just these over-the-top characters, these accents, these different language imitations, gibberish, but fun. The Jewish voice began a little bit later on, and then it was just such a part of me. What am I going to take, uh, uh, you know, classes to change my accent or and go out for <laughs> roles as a surfer boy? You know, it was, this is what it is. And I, and so, I so that people get a, just even a flavor of, of the kind of material we're talking about here. Just unpack for us this difference between the Sabbath greeting across the Jewish world, just because I think it's quite illustrative of the, the sort of thing you're doing. I, I don't know this. So this is, I guess, something that's stuck in your head and you couldn't wait to get this going on your podcast. I couldn't wait. <laughs> yeah, give, me a, give me a good Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat shalom. Shabbat Shalom, peaceful Shabbat Shalom. They give it to with all their, they're from here, Shabbat Shalom. They almost command you to have a peaceful Sabbath. Shabbat Shalom, Shabbat Alechem Ve'akon Benechem. Ume'alkon Ve'nechem. Shabbat Shalom. They give it to you, it's passion. Ashkenazi Jews before the Sabbath, Good Chavez. Good Chavez. How are you? Okay, good. <laughs> With your arms folded, like as if you're a very clenched, uptight Ashkenazi Jew. Yes. <laughs> what would you know about that, Jonathan? About being anyway, um, I was I, I was just wondering since you do I mean one of your really the talents is to do every Jewish denomination like you do the the reforms you do the Hasidim ultra orthodox you can play any crowd. I wonder without getting you into too much trouble which is the best crowd for comedy out of all of the Jewish denominations. You're not going to answer that, are you? It's the situation. Okay. I, we were in London. I had five shows. Each show is different. The seven o'clock shows were a little bit better than some of the nine o'clock, the nine thirty shows because people were less tired. Uh, the British people, <laughs> we realized we because I, I like to put a little bit of light on the audience just so I can see them. And the British, you gotta turn all the lights off because they don't want to laugh in front of other people. We learned that in the first night of shows. Hmm. Um, you know, I perform in events where. Uh, <laughs> It's not just comedy happening that night. There's a dinner, a gala, there's speakers, there's honorees, there's a movie about the organization. And then, and here's Modi, which is the name of my podcast. That's why I named my podcast, And Here's Modi, because I'm always following something crazy. So it's not just a comedy night. So it depends on the situation of the audience. 
Mm-hmm. And I notice that you must get this a lot. There is a kind of gasp of recognition that your material brings from your audience. And where I first felt it, saw it, was w- the character of yours that I think went viral during lockdown, which is Yoli. Um, you'll, may- maybe you'll say it differently. Uh, but the sort of Haredi, Hasidic Jew, which is just such a brilliant Running idea, reviewing Yoli, thank you, reviewing um you know, ultra secular TV, Tiger King or The Crown or whatever. And that went viral. But what was really interesting, I noticed when people shared it with me, they'd immediately say, obviously, this guy is from the Haredi world. Nobody else could do this otherwise. So, you know, it must be somebody who has been in that world. Is he still in that world? You know, that was the conversation. Nobody could believe you'd made it up, basically. So where did, where you know, where, what are you drawing from? Where did that come from? And even this collision of, him, you know, watching Tiger King. I mean, where did, where, where, which part of your brain did all that come from? I, I don't know. I, I'm very good at accents. I'm very good at picking up things when I'm around them. And I've been around the Hasidic world. So I pick up their nuances that are amazing. They're so great. And, you know, during lockdown, they were getting such a bad rap between not quarantining, which they almost couldn't. You can't quarantine when you have 18 kids in the house, you know. And then the, all the movies that came out, Unorthodox and My Unorthodox Life and all these just horrendous, horrendously awful, negative showing of this community. So I said, I'm going to come on and we're going to have fun with it. We're going to, here's Yoeli, here's the character, here's what's happening. I made some PSA announcements regarding the mask. I made some, uh, you know, for, for Hatsala, for the ambulance corps. Um, I, I don't remember the videos, but then we did the... You know, I gave a hetter. I gave uh, I gave them rishus to to watch to watch television, and then the 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 near character, which is much you know more along my line, which is the the Israeli know it all. Um, listen, to me, we were we were quarantining. We were we made the best of it. You know, with Yuri, we ran for president in twenty twenty. We did all kinds of uh, of reviews and videos and. To a point where it became where people weren't sure I was a comedian. People who hadn't heard of me didn't know that he's also a comedian. He's just he just they just thought there was these characters. Well, that's what I mean. People bought it, and did did the Haredi community did they like Yoli or they loved it? But funny enough, the Haredi community liked Nir more, and the Israeli community liked Yoli more. You know, because they (laughs) they they can I I work with a Yoli or I work with a Nir. They. Everybody found who, who they liked. Themselves. Talk to us a little bit about growing up with Israeli parents. You lived in Israel until the age of seven. Like, talk to us. Essentially living, what, in an Israeli household in Long Island, basically, growing up? We lived, the, the in, um, we lived in, uh, we came to America at the age of seven. I was at the age of seven. I came with my mm. parents because that was the only option I had. Um, <laughs> not that I regret it. It was amazing, and I'm happy. And uh, we grew up in Long Island, and growing up with Israeli parents, you know, is... Um, Growing up with any parents that have, that are a foreign, that they're coming with their cultures and all of that. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we lived in the five towns and my parents were trying to figure out where we were going to be like, what was their jam? What was going to be there? They tried like, we tried to go into the Catskills once. My, my, we, we left in the middle. My mom was so grossed <laughs> out by the food. <laughs> my, my parents ended up being friends with other Israelis, and um, and that was the I mean, in the house we only spoke Hebrew, so mm-hmm. that was the growing up, you know. And it's you grow up with an Israeli mom; it's just different than growing up with a regular m- mom in the five towns. 
So you, you gave this interview with Variety recently and it got a lot of attention. Uh, you know, I think people misreported it as, as if it was some kind of coming out statement. You later clarified, no, it wasn't. You People knew exactly who you were before then. But these are you, your words to Variety. I think if people were to describe me, it's like this. This is a proud Jewish comedian. He's gay. He keeps kosher. He puts on tefillin. He goes to Shabbat services. But he's also gay. So... You know, I'm thinking particularly of the of the kind of crowds you play for, often orthodox crowds, even ultra orthodox crowds. Maybe you'll tell us. Are, are they as comfortable with that description of you and that reality as you are? Uh, yes, I get, well, so far we haven't. The phone, thank God, Baruch Hashem, keeps <laughs> ringing nonstop. Every day we get uh, somewhere around five inquiries for for shows from orthodox Jewish events to Chabad to Boneolam, to Sharet uh, Tzedek, to High Lifeline, and my, my own shows too, where I sell out, and it's people coming there with yarmulkes. So I don't think it has any impact where it's preventing my me growing as a comedian or will take away work. And anybody that doesn't want to hire me because I'm gay, I don't want to be there. I, that's like a, a gig I'm okay not doing. And I suppose what's behind that is, there was a time where those two, you know, categories were seen as mutually exclusive. You know, Orthodox Jewish was one thing, gay was another thing. The minute an Orthodox Jew said they were gay, it was assumed that means they're breaking from Orthodoxy. They're no longer going to be accepted in that world. They'll break from it. I, I know, you know, from experience, this the community I'm in here, those were seen as two sort of binary categories. You seem to have bucked that. Has something changed where it is completely acceptable within the orthodox world for a, for a gay man to be a gay man and orthodox jews are now fine with that i think the world has changed a lot not just uh the orthodox world, but the whole world in fact just the, the way they view gay people you know when, when, when i was growing up i didn't know what that gay was also the senator and your doctor and your lawyer it was you know we, we didn't you know, today it's someone who's coming out and knows that they have every option in the world that they can be and do and so the world and the Orthodox Jewish community is embracing it. Also, you, you know, it's also how close it's your child comes out to you. Do you want to lose this child or do you want to still have them in your life? And people, you know, I, I think have just developed in general. There are people who are still way back and are a mess. Mm -hmm. But I think in general, it's become a lot better. Mm hmm. I, I want to talk about the Jewish part of your personality and say, I mean, this is not at all a funny uh, issue, and that is the the issue of anti-Semitism. When you live in a in a country that has Kanye West and Joe Rogan saying things like that, Jews love money like Italians love pizza. How do you deal with that? Is is humor the answer to everything, or is it is there more? I use it to my um, humor is the answer through me. As my job as a comedian, humor is the answer to bringing happiness to sad people and bringing peace wherever you can. And uh, things such as Kanye, for me, was a blessing that he screamed all of that stuff out. I put it in my act. There was places where I was. It actually helped me with a punchline. Um, it unites people when we laugh. You know, I. I what was the punchline? What? What was the punchline? Uh, the punchline is some what. Uh, where, uh, you know, those uh, 23 and Me, that, um, that test mm -hmm. that gives you your ancestry, they also give you your, what, what, what are your health risks? And the results came back, and they were amazing for them. 
got back those pie charts. One eighth Navajo Indian. Woo! A quarter Iberian, Celtic, Norwegian, African. I was so excited. I opened mine up. It said 99.8% Jewish. That was it. The pie chart was a matzo ball with a toothpick in it. The results came back in Yiddish. Then they give you your health risks. What are my health risks? To hypertension? To diabetes? Nazis! Nazis are my number one. Nazis and Kanye are my number one health risks. Contribution for his. So you're unusual a bit because like this podcast, you straddle the two Jewish worlds, meaning Israel and not Israel, the diaspora Jewish world, America and so on, performed here in Britain and Europe. What are the big differences as a comic in front of those audiences? Are there jokes that Israelis roar with laughter at that just would f- fall flat to an American Jewish audience? And does it work the other way around? I mean, people used to say that, you know, no Amer- Israelis would sit watching old Woody Allen movies and think, well, why is this funny? This guy, this sort of Shlemiel is, you know, he should, he's not big and strong like we are. I don't get the joke. What, that what was what used to be the sort of cliche. They did used to say that. Yoni, you're an exception because, of course, you love those movies. But you know what I mean. <laughs> are there jokes that work or don't work? Uh, it's, it, the, the jokes are, uh, the jokes work, to answer your question. In both audiences, you have to know your audience. You have to know how to deliver the joke, how to present the joke. Again, like I said, I make fun of Ashkenazi people because I'm Ashkenazi. I can't go up there and say, Safari people are ridiculous. They take so long to do everything. You can't do that because it doesn't, if you're making fun of yourself, okay. And then they understand, I'm just making fun of the fact that there's differences, but what does it mean? It means nothing. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean anything. It's just funny. You know, view it as funny, not as as a real difference and a problem that we have to change. They often start saying Shabbat Shalom. They can't say good job. It's not. It's comedy. It's, it, it brings levity. And people always, you know, hit me. My, my wife is Ashkazi. My husband's Sephardic. This one's Israeli. That one's Hasidic. It, it, it unites people. And uh, mm-hmm. regarding your Israeli and uh, American art, it's how you present the joke. It's all how mm-hmm. you present the joke. If you want to quote yeah. Woody Allen, he said there could be a joke that's not funny at all. And uh, somebody funny tells it, says it, it'll be funny. You know, there's a yeah. joke that's funny, a hysterical joke. Someone who's not funny says it, it won't land. So that's, it's what it is. I am not going to drag you into the Israeli quagmire and ask you what's, what do you think about what's going on here, unless you want to say it. But uh, I'm wondering, since a Jewish comedian is doing a pretty good job in saving Ukraine, maybe uh, you'd like to come over and help us out. I'm just saying. I, I help out every day when I j- just make people laugh. Um, I don't, it's not, I have no, I know what's happening. Israel is absolutely insane. And, uh, hopefully it's something that brings to a better end. I don't know the bits and the, the, the little who's who and what said that and this sar and that sar and all of the ministers. I don't follow any of that. I just send my prayers. I hope that I make people laugh somewhere that it brings that energy into Israel. I'm going to be performing in Israel. I hope that brings a little bit of, and there's some TV projects I'm working on with Israel that are, that are, are happening. So, but yeah, as far as what's happening politically in Israel, I just wish for Mashiach energy. I just hope that what, 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 whatever comes out of this, that, that whatever you're going through 
brings a great result. Yeah, I love this phrase, Mashiach Energy. You use it in your stand-up act. I think, you know, there's a little bit of Chabad in there a bit with the whole, uh, the Rebbe before and that, you know, the the thought that maybe he was the Messiah, etc. What's your meaning of, in when you talk about Mashiach Energy? Um, Mashiach Energy, the, the easiest thing to understand from it is laughter. It's laughter. You're, you're in a room with people and they're laughing. You're all one. You're all doing the same thing. You're laughing. You're having an amazing body experience and just try to get that to, to be everywhere. When you help people, which is the Rebbe, he was all about helping people. You know, as soon as you met him, you got to be in front of him. He gave you a dollar to go help somebody else. This is Mashiach energy. The, the Rebbe was the complete embodiment of Mashiach energy. Not a barrel of laughs though. Huh? <laughs> Not a barrel of laughs, though. I don't know. I never hung out. I bet you he was very funny. I, 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 I never sat with him for Yechidus. I never sat with him and, and one-on-one. I've only received dollars. But I'm sure people in his circle, when he could drop a joke, he would drop a joke. Because laughter, again, is Mashiach energy. And that's what he was. What's your favorite Yiddish word? Ours is verklempt. Can I say that ours is verklempt, or do you have a different one, Jonathan? No, I'm, I'm prepared to accept think, that view. I mean, I there's there's, there's plenty, plenty I like. I could offer more, but let's go. Let's go, let's hear our guests' nomination. There's no way I have a favorite Yiddish word. There is a. Uh, in whatever situation I'm in, there might be a favorite word for that. Do you understand? Okay. Like, like yep. you know, I'm watching a video of mine and we see the angle was bad. I'm like, wow, I look so fahagit. Oh, do I look <laughs> awful? You know, uh, um, you know, I'm watching something, a video of mine. I'm, I'm dressed. I'm, I'm over. I'm like, oh, I look, oh, it's Gepach, New Jersey. You know, it's like, <laughs> you, there's no favorite. Yiddish is, it's whatever word comes up to you. Whatever word comes, <laughs> you know. But is it all from your grandparents? I mean, you speak, your Yiddish is fluent if there is such a, you know, we had, thing to our say. grandparents like you, did speak Yiddish. I, I listened to Yiddish music all, all growing up. Uh, and okay. then when I was in yeshiva and I studied, uh, the, the, the sikhot, the, 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 the sikhos of the Rebbe, I, that was my favorite thing. And I would study that in Yiddish and that's where I picked up the Yiddish. And then you work it and you listen to stuff and you watch and it builds, builds and, and you, you, you learn, you learn Yiddish. Like someone so, who's in, imprisoned in in a in a in a jail in Mexico, they're going to learn Spanish. <laughs> it's very very similar experience. <laughs> I think. Very similar experience. A Jewish upbringing is very akin to a Mexican experience of incarceration. But let's just ask Ooh. you this: the f- different festivals. Some are funny. Some are not funny. I'm guessing. But Purim claims to be like the fun festival. People dress up and so on. There's meant to be laughter. Is Purim funny? This is the week of Purim. Is it funny? It's fun. People do, I've done many shows on Purim. People love, it's a, it's a fun holiday. It's one of the fun ones. I don't know if it's funny, but it's fun. Yeah. So what is your favorite Jewish holiday then? Uh, wow, my favorite Jewish holiday is um, Yom Kippur is definitely up there. Hanukkah. Hanukkah. Hanukkah's good. There's eight good. days. You can plan eight events. There's no <laughs> telephone restriction. You can drive. You can call. Hanukkah is definitely one of my favorites. We agree. Jonathan's a Pesach person. I love Pesach. But I think all of them have got a case. I wonder about humor, though. I'm just wondering if it's one of the ones that isn't meant to be fun ends up with more potential for humor. In other words, there are a lot of old jokes, aren't there? Hasidic sort of helm jokes about Yom Kippur, for example. 
right you know the man with the with the food stashed in his pockets you know it seems to me there's more potential for jokes in the festivals that aren't meant to be funny there's jokes in everything. There's joke. There's come on. Every time you go to synagogue on, on Yom Kippur, some idiot says, "I'm sponsoring Kiddush." <laughs> there's always the jokes. You know what I'm saying? It's always there's people always find people find a joke and they can do it. You should always look for the joke, and it doesn't matter what holiday it is. It can even be Tish above. You know, it, whatever. The, you always find some kind of humor. I have a whole Good. bit I do about a shiva. I do a whole yeah. thing on a shiva, uh, the, you know, death. And you, you make it funny. You bring humor to it. I've, I've seen your gag about the speed of a Jewish funeral, because Jews do it quick, right? The funeral. There's no messing around. Shivers. Shivers. You know shivers? Non-Jews. I'm not going to lose you. <laughs> shivers is uh, when Jews die. When a Jew dies, we bury them right away. Right? There's no messing around. Someone died, bam, in the ground. There is no messing around. In Florida, when the old people take a nap, they wake up, no! Put the shovel away, it's just a nap! Especially in England, I was talking about how long it took to, for them to bury the queen. <laughs> you know, they dragged her for 23 days and I did a whole thing on that and they were, they, they were cracking up. England is a, it's a unique audience, the, the Jews in, in England. They were, um, first of all, I didn't know there was only 300,000. At most, what yeah. I mean, it's maybe 270,000. It's not, it's not a big community, but, you know, we, we make ourselves noticed. So almost 3,000 came to my show. <laughs> yeah. So that's it's 10%, huge. no? Uh, I think that's 1%, 1%, but I don't want to quibble with you. <laughs> Who needs to talk numbers on a day like this? <laughs> the thing I left Merrill Lynch. Two Jews talking percentages. It's not a good look. So talk talk to us more about the British Jewish crowd. It's okay. We can we can uh, accept. Your need likes this. Can, Anything negative? Like she's going to laugh at <laughs> no, it. No, not negative. Love. No negative. They are so sweet, and all the shows began on time. I was in shock. <laughs> when we do shows in, in New York, we just assume 20, 30 minutes late. Um, maybe I tell the opening actors to do half of his stuff. They were great. They were, they came to laugh. They were watching more than like, they were like, what's he, where is this going? Um, they were wonderful. They, I, I mean, they came, they bought tickets right away. The show sold out immediately. It was fun being in England. And, you know, and it wasn't in the Jewish community. There was an effort made for them to come to the show. It wasn't like in Golders Green, you park by the synagogue, you go upstairs. It's, it was fun. And, you know, the, the whole English audience, I really only met them during, uh, the, the the pandemic during uh, quarantine when I began do, doing shows out there and uh, on online on Zoom and then the and they just keep in touch on uh, very polite we enjoyed your show very much brilliant absolutely lovely very very sweet audience that's good to hear of course if it had been in Golders Green they wouldn't have parked outside they would have double parked outside <laughs> that's very important in Golders Green Modi it's been a great pleasure you have seen the Purim week in for us in great style um yeah. you, you I know you have a website people can look up to find out where you're next playing performing modilive.com all the tickets M-O-D-I live.com uh sign up for the email list and put down where you are so you you won't get emails for shows that have nothing to do with you and uh <laughs> and here's Modi is my podcast uh which is 
a lot of fun and people uh, enjoy it probably as much as they enjoy yours. And um, I hope we made this holy rather than unholy. And um, <laughs> and I wish you guys an amazing, amazing Purim, an amazing Pesach and uh, and just fun and lots of Mashiach energy. Thanks a lot, Mori. Thank, Thank you. Thank you. So we are very grateful to Modi um, keeping us smiling in these potentially unsmiling times. Um, we have our own little contribution to the joy of nations with our weekly awards, Yonit. And I think there is a very worthy nominee, although much competition this time. But for a much <laughs> crowded field, crowded field uh, these, this week, indeed. Um, but uh, let's let we return to the issue of uh, the pilots who refused uh, service. Netanyahu, of course, coming out talking against this uh, uh, phenomenon in a. Uh, in a press op, which he did in the the backdrop, were uh, police, border police, and he wanted to talk against the phenomenon of of refusal of insubordination. He was standing next to Itamar Ben-Gvir, who, in uh, you know other times in Israel, was a symbol of uh, insubordination and of not following the rules. And they both were uh, talking about how important it is to follow the rules and do what uh, you are told and not to refuse. So I think that's a little bit of a chutzpah award. Really? It is a perfect chutzpah award that Itamar Ben-Gvir is lecturing soldiers, patriots, on their obligations to obey the state when, do you remember Ruth Margulit on our podcast said that when he appeared at some court hearing and they wanted to print up the history of past convictions, there were so many they had to change the ink on the printer to print up the full historic sort of rap sheet against Itamar Ben-Gvir. Mm -hmm. And he's now telling Israeli Air Force pilots about obeying the rules. Unbelievable yep. <laughs> chutzpah, just perfect. Um, for Mensch, before we get to our Mensch, um, I just wanted to give a little mention of somebody who could have been a candidate for Mensch in recent weeks for his contribution to the field of Israeli archaeology. And I say could because of the way things turned out. But Elon Levy, who is uh, a spokesperson for the president of the state of Israel, was out walking uh, during a hike in the Tel Lachish National Park where he came across a tiny bit of pottery, a pottery fragment which appeared to say on it, in Aramaic, the inscription, Year 24 of Darius or Darius, depending on how you pronounce it, which would have dated this little item, this pottery fragment to 498 BCE. Everyone got very excited. He handed it over to the Israeli antiqui Israel's Antiquities Authority. People were thinking this is the first proof of the presence of this figure, uh, the father of the biblical Ahasuerus or Ahasuerus, big figure in the Purim story, everything was coming together perfectly until, as if to spoil the party, Israel's Antiquities Authority had to step forward and say, I'm afraid it's a fake. And not a malicious fake, we should stress, but rather somebody, a scholar, an unnamed expert, had been on an expedition in Tel Achish last summer. And in order to demonstrate to students how these artifacts used to be inscribed, she had got out some kind of, you know, a little blade or a pencil or something, and she'd written Darius the year 24 on the scrap of pottery and threw it to the ground only for it to be found by Elon Levy. But Elon Levy did the right thing by handing it to the Antiquities Authority. And for a few days, 
enjoy the status of this great archaeological trailblazer. This story went right round the world. In the end, unfortunately, a false alarm, but a mention <laughs> for Elon Levy, for can't, at least for doing the right thing. Can't and, believe um, you did this whole Purim thing without saying Xerxes once. Once. Um, well, I, of course, wouldn't have said that because <laughs> I think the figure you're referring to is Xerxes. And I think that's how we say that, isn't it? Um, scholars, please do correct either me or your neat. Uh, for this. First of all, scholars, please reprimand Jonathan for being <laughs> condescending and then agree with me that it's Xerxes and not Xerxes. Uh, very so nice, obvious. I'm sure that between us, we've got the, we've got, we've hit the right pronunciation at least once. I'm not saying <laughs> when and I'm not saying who, but for me, I say Xerxes, you say, what is it? Xer how do you say it? Xerxes. So I think Xerxes. I think the X when it's the first letter is like a Z. That's how I, that's where I'm going. Wait, but we had an actual, oh yes, we do have an actual uh, um, mensch, yes, obviously, we which we should reiterate. That was what we opened with, so. It is. Time I think can't be, no other person can be the mensch of the week. Topol is our mensch of the week and uh, a bringer of much joy over many, many years. A, a memory just pops back into my head. He did a series for the BBC in the 80s called Topol's Israel where he did this little guide with his daughter and everything went around various places. An interesting sign of how times have changed. I don't think the BBC would air such a show now. But as Tevye, he will be forever remembered, even if that was a burden for him a little bit in his lifetime. He has left his mark. And so Chaim Topol, our mensch of okay. the week. We will see you all next week. If you've enjoyed the show, remember to rate and review. I looked at our little ratings the other day. You know, we are at 4.9 out of 5 stars. It is my mother great. would would my mother would say to that, why only 4.9? Why only 4.9? We're happy. We'll take the win. We're very grateful to you for <laughs> doing that. Um, it's we're, we're pleased. Do spread the word. Remember, we're on Facebook and Instagram at Unholy Podcast and we should say thank you. To Gaia Glazer, Rom Attic, Omer Primat, and Yair Bashan. Happy uh, what's left to pour him, and uh, we shall meet next week. We shall see you then. See ya. This podcast is brought to you by Cyber Attacks Can Be Prevented. Checkpoint. You deserve the best security.